0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 99 of the Justin Insight podcast, a show where I, Tim Bertbeck, talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and find out what makes them tick. I uh, hope everyone's well. hope everyone didn't miss me too much on my week off. Um, I'm not going to lie, though, I am absolutely shattered. You might be able to hear by my voice, I'm a little bit sort of croaky and exhausted. Uh, got back into the UK about four five a.m. this morning which is Monday when I'm recording this uh, slept for about two hours then went and did my day job and now I'm in my room recording this intro for you so running on fumes is an understatement um, but yeah in general feeling pretty good we're at episode 99 one away from the big one double O um, Still can't believe we're we're almost there. But yeah, thank you for everyone who's who supported the show f- for two years now. Fucking hell, yeah, we're over two years old. Um, so yeah, it's been been really kind of affirming doing this. Um, but yeah, the reason I was away last week, if anyone wasn't aware, I was off uh, driving my friends in Punjon around Spain and a little bit of France. Um got to say massive thanks to the guys in uh the collective over in Malaga called LaSoya who helped kind of book everything. Um and it was one thing that I really learned from from this week is that over in mainland Europe there's a lot more of a sense of community surrounding kind of the DIY shows and DIY spaces, and it's something that we lack here in the UK. So it was really like refreshing to see that, but also kind of wanting to see more of that here in the UK. So hopefully I don't know if more bands like Punjong go over overseas and see that kind of thing happening they'll bring that kind of culture back to the UK and we'll we'll see more I guess mixed mi- yeah mixed sort of community like feel within within DIY shows because I think over here in the UK at the moment like you go to a show you know you're at a show but they have like everyone was sitting around having dinner together and then you'd watch the show and then after the show everyone was socialising it was it was like a whole kind of event which was really cool so yeah that was a, a really cool moment but also just in general for the punch on guys just to see every night them getting really good recognition from from the crowds at each show so yeah it was, a, it was a really cool week away um i am ready for bed now so once this is recorded edited and gone i'm gonna have a long sleep um but whilst we talk about uh punch on my guest this week is vocalist and guitarist of punch on sean adicott um we recorded this while we were waiting to get the ferry home uh and we discuss uh sean's kind of discovery of screamo which is one of the kind of leading uh influence in what his musical talent is but also uh, electronic music which he is sort of dabbling in as well now um how he learned to sort of structure songs and learning music theory, which then kind of evolved into him actually teaching music for a while, um and literally until a few days before heading off on tour he was still teaching and has now recently packed it in. But yeah, um we also discuss uh Punchon's new record which is gonna be recorded at some point this year. Um but the subject matter of it does revolve around sexual abuse so just a courtesy warning here, if anyone is affected by uh, sexual abuse or has been abused then this is just a warning that this is being discussed, um, so just a, a pre-warning there I guess in general, but yeah, um, thought I'd keep this intro short because as I say I'm pretty tired so going to sh- leave it with my little chat with Sean and I'll see you on the other side. sat in the van at the end of Punch On's European tour with guitarist and vocalist of Punch On, Sean Adicott. Sean, okay. how are you doing? We'll a p- coffee and weird variety of
1: cacao and cashew quinoa bar. There we go. Perkia brand. Nutrition. <laughs> <Perky> brand. <laughs> nutritious energy. Um, I'm very well, thank you.
0: Um, tour is now over. Pa- mm-hmm. Personal highlight?
1: Mmm. There's so much I could say. Um, People actually moshing and stage diving to our music. (laughs) And not just like observing with folded arms and sort of. um, Yeah. That or someone actually knowing the lyrics to some of our songs. Yeah, that was.
0: That for me, that kind of got me when that happened when the guys in Malaga started. Along. I was like, oh, oh, this is this is a thing. Yeah,
1: like it, it felt very validating. Yeah. It was really intense.
0: Well, as always with my show, I like to take my guests right back to their kind of musical beginnings. Mm-hmm. So what was your first introduction to alternative music?
1: When I was maybe 11 or 12, hearing Minority by Green Day on the radio, I think. That... Mm. Yeah and hearing, around that time, probably Blink-182 as well. Yeah. Um, Small things, that was getting played on the radio a bit. I guess there's kind of classic bands that had just broken through at that point in time. Um, And yeah, where did it go in? I remember, as well, really enjoying Music by Limp Bizkit. I had like Chocolate Starfish, which I think I got off a friend and copied to tape, or maybe yeah. even copied a CD of. And the first band that I was really right, okay, this is like my band, was Nirvana. Okay, cool. Um, I had Nevermind, and from that point, I spent about nine months listening to pretty much just, just Nirvana. <laughs> and then I got, I went on a school trip and had some excess money. We found ourselves at a CD shop, like one of like the big ones. And like I was aware of some of the like Epitaph record punk bands at that point in time but it was there I bought a No Effects CD. Okay. I was like oh cool so this is punk rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And definitely had like okay this is what I'm gonna do for a bit. And from there like if I had money I'd go and buy like Punkorama samplers. Just find out about loads and loads of bands. It was really weird. It was a strange period of time because like I had it you know when I'm trying to explain it to my students before like music wasn't as everywhere even then like 10 or 15 years ago than it is now it was like yeah I had a conversation with a friend about it talking about those kind of bands
0: yeah because I think luckily like I've got an older brother brother, so obviously he would kind of put me into a lot of things but as you say like it, it was nowhere near as accessible as it is today like if somebody said to you oh go check it if we take Green Day for example but now you can put that in Spotify and you've got a whole catalogue of bands that similar in
1: that so yeah and it's like if you if you found out about a band you would have to go to their actual they'd have to have a website yeah yeah. so there was a period of time where bands actually had to have websites because social media wasn't really a thing in like 2001 2002 and like you find like like i'd go through like the epitaph records website and the fat records website and all of those kind of like skate punk bands and be like cool i know this person does this in a band i wonder if that's them in the picture could that be (laughs) that guy oh, maybe I'll find a music video one day. Yeah. <laughs> but like, because we didn't have, I don't think we had broadband at that point in time. I don't think even YouTube was. Like, no, YouTube wouldn't have existed it, no, then. No. That was like 2005 or six. Yeah. So you'd, you'd click on like the video link and then you'd have to like wait for ages yeah, yeah. for QuickTime Player to A, update and then B, start working. So you could fit like, yeah. It was like a real nice dark ages because in a way there was, <laughs> there was like a validation to having to work really hard to find out anything yeah, about yeah, anything yeah. you were into. Then I guess kind of the sort of, from like the skate punk kind of stuff. I got really, really into like Rise Against and Strike Anywhere and like a Wilhelm scream and kind of like, especially with Rise Against and Strike Anywhere. And Anti-Flag too, like a recognition of politics within music mm. and being like, okay, these guys are actually saying something. Like when I listen to some of it back now, I'm like, okay, it's not as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? like. Considered perhaps as it could yeah, have been, yeah. but it, it was—it's still like there's was still a cause to the music. um So that brings us up to about fifteen, sixteen, and around that time, I was kind of looking for other things to to go along with, and obviously that was the classic sort of like mainstream emo phase. Mm. um and I wasn't hugely into a lot of those bands. I had a fun five minutes with like Avenged Sevenfold. Yeah, I was really interested in like guitar melody. Yeah, and like guitar harmony, kind of ideas. Um, I quite liked Iron Maiden and stuff like that too, but it wasn't until I got into some of the slightly more techie punk stuff that um, I found like things that I was like, wow, this is like actually blowing my mind. How are they <laughs> yeah. How are they doing that? I understand this, I understand... Okay. And then from there, it was like, there was a point where I was definitely looking for heavy music, and I wasn't really... like I went to some hardcore shows... I maintain to this day that Sick of It All are one of the best like bands you can go to oh, yeah, in life. Yeah. Like I like I like hardcore. It's kind of you know hardcore is in what hardcore means. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to kind of that nineties broad kind of sense of what hardcore can be. But I went to a show when I was about seventeen or eighteen, and like I was aware of. Should we say the next chapter of my life? I was aware of Screamo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I I was part of the MX Tabs uh forum which then became Sputnik music. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So it was through that they just had classifications of different styles of bands and I went and listened to a whole load of stuff. Um and some of it I was like, oh, "Okay, wow, this is really cool," but no. Um, one example in the first instance of that was uh, Circle Takes the Square. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing that and being like, this is cool, but I don't know, maybe? I was like sure.
0: that when like, my brain just wasn't mature enough to compute what they were doing. Yeah,
1: I couldn't quite grasp it, but I knew there was bits in it I enjoyed. And then I also heard a local band, or a local enough band, called Chariots.
2: Okay.
1: Um who I've gone back and checked out again and basically they, they, their thing is like, we sound like Orchid ripping off Jerome Stream.
0: Nice, okay.
1: So I heard that when I was about 16 or 17 and was like, wow, I can hear like the melodies that are amazing, but this is just like, it sounds so shitty, <laughs> <laughs> like it's so badly recorded. It sounds like, do you know what I mean? It sounds like the, the drum sounded like two biscuits being like knocked together, <laughs> like, and the vocals were just like. <sighs> just like someone yeah the reverb on the vocals was oh it was crap it was brilliant it was amazing <laughs> um, but it wasn't until I went to this show like I was saying when I was maybe 17 or 18 and my friend's band were playing and they were very botch influenced right. but were also very into like Page 99 and that kind of stuff and the guitar player had the um, what's the the Joy Division t-shirt with the mountains that yeah, are yeah, yeah. certain pleasures Yeah. and underneath it just said La uh, nice. and I was like right, I'm going to go and check that band out and I went home and it, that was it that yeah. was that clicking point of no I get this this is Fucking incredible music, like, like almost like the beauty of like post rock chords, but played with just almost like reckless abandon, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Like it was the La Finé Non La Finé album, and it was I, I, yeah, I didn't stop listening to it. <laughs> and that summer, uh, my friend Tommy, Tommy Royds, just, just was like, these are the bands you need to check out, and sent me like twenty five bands. Oh, okay, nice. Um, I think I only recently completed that list. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking like 11 years later or whatever, 10 years later. But um, yeah, through there, I just discovered more and more music. And then I started going to more and more shows. I think I was about 16 or 17 when I was going to like DIY shows in my hometown. Um, Which was a range of things. There was one promoter that was doing loads of like, sort of adjacent things so loads of like quite a lot of instrumental stuff quite a Mm. lot of math rock quite a lot of stuff from the continent uh bands like edward jr and is it new panu um they were really really good and then a couple of like bsm type bands and bands like shield your eyes those guys um and then other promoters are doing other things. I saw California Love oh, sick. Uh, in High working, which was nuts with like Worker and Parasite. And there was like a London hardcore band. I can't remember the name of Um And just kind of became more aware that it's like, oh, there's people that are literally just traveling around the world for like not much money. Yeah, yeah. And very like seeing that. It was a lot more tangible, I suppose. It was like you actually meet people and hung out with people. Yeah, yeah. And it was very social and people would bring boxes of records, some of which I'd seen on the internet and some of which I'd never heard of. I was like, okay, I'll just go home and listen to this and see (laughs) what this is. Um, You know, through perfectly legitimate means, of course. I was paying for everything I was listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then, you know, that was kind of the rooting experience that kind of brings us through to now, really.
0: Mm. So in terms of you actually sort of picking up a guitar... Mm. One, was guitar always the thing that you were kind of drawn towards? And two, was it kind of from that early stage of like when you first heard Green Day or stuff or did it take you a while to actually think, oh no, I actually want to pick up a guitar myself?
1: So I think I decided that electric guitar was the coolest thing on earth when I was about five years old. Okay, Uh, And (laughs) uh, nothing has shaken that opinion in the last (laughs) 25 years. Um, Yeah. Uh, And when I was nine I started getting less school, lessons in classical guitar because oh, that's what my school offered and I think it was my first time where I learned that part about myself that's like if I'm not really into something I find it really hard to motivate myself yeah, to do yeah, it yeah, yeah. so I, I, I basically ended up playing in like in like classical guitar pieces a lot of them were arranged for four parts so you have your kind of like your two almost melody parts and then a very harmony part and then you've got your bass line and I always chose the bass line because it had the least amount of notes, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. and it meant I didn't have to do anywhere near as much homework. Because guitar was cool, but I couldn't play it, and yeah. And when I was 12, I got an electric guitar from my parents, like a Squire Strat, um, which is still in our family home. I've actually written some Punch On songs on that oh, guitar. Nice. Um, That's cool. Yeah, got that, and was got quite busy learning whatever, and it was a struggle because like. I kind of, I guess, I kind of taught myself. Yeah. Like I had all the stuff I'd learned from guitar lessons in my head, but like, there was such like if I was to look at it now, like that and that, it's like yeah, these are the same thing. But in my head, that there was so many things missing in terms of my understanding of music and the instrument. that it was just, it was two different things. I think.
0: I think like, again, to use my brother as an example, like he, when did he get his guitar? Maybe when he was like fourteen. And like literally, he was just like learning by ear or just off like some shitty tab that somebody had written yeah. up on the internet and yeah, as you yeah. say like in those days it took you about an hour just to download one guitar tab yeah. sort of thing yeah so, yeah yeah it was oh sorry go yeah I know so yeah
1: through that and then like through learning Nirvana songs yeah Nirvana was that kind of like first case of like taking ownership over yeah over something in terms of like my own learning um I had a book like a big old it was like and I, I wanted to get one of those, like the official album books, but they were like fifteen quid. Yeah. And for twenty quid, you could get this book that had all of the albums in it. Okay. But it was arranged with like for piano and supporting guitar. Right. Okay. So I learnt quite a lot of the songs from that, and kind of yeah, I, this, I did GCSE and A level music as well. Mm. So uh, through most of GCSE music, I was like kind of straggling through, like, getting there and trying to learn as I went. I realised I was picking up music theory possibly slightly quicker than other people, but lacking in performance skills. Right, okay. Because, yeah, if you've ever studied music theory, it's basically just an abstracted form of maths. (laughs) So my brain was quite good at maths. It was like, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. I understand why that's that, and then therefore that's that.
0: So then, in terms of, kind of, you actually... Then sort of playing music. Mm. What was your kind of first exploration into that, like takeaway kind of doing it in like school and things like that? Like, mm. where, when were you like, I want to form a band or I want to play as my on my own or any form sort of like in a live setting, I guess.
1: Always wanted to. I kind of hadn't tried to do something when I was about fourteen, uh, and it it was when well, no, I maybe thirteen, and it it didn't really come to much. And then when I was about fourteen, I was in year ten. Me and my my good friend Matt Box started a band, and I was like super like Bad Religion, Alkaline Trio, and he was like, yeah, cool, but I also you should check out like uh, at the Driving and Refused, yeah, yeah. and I was like, okay, let's just let's just. I don't think we even had the lexicon at the time to be like, <laughs> let's try and fuse those two things. Yeah, yeah, it was very much like, let's try and be a band. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we did that and we wrote some songs, we played our school a couple times. Uh, there was two like Christmas shows that we performed. Uh, and then yeah, that we were a four piece band, there was a kid in our year that played bass and a kid that played drums, uh, that was Ben and Aaron. And we went through a number of name changes and kind of just kept writing songs. Um, nothing really ever came of it. Nothing was recorded as far as I'm aware, but it was that first period of time of like actually learning how to write songs. Yeah, yeah. And that was almost more impo- important than any sort of performance skills. It was learning like how chord sequences work in different keys and how you structure songs and how to use verses and chorus or equally not to use verse and chorus yeah, and yeah, how yeah. to how you can bring other musical ideas into a sort of connection to create <laughs> sort of pieces yeah yeah, yeah yeah um yeah i was the vocalist of that band and i had no idea how to use my voice so <laughs> there was there was no consistency into so, sometimes i'd show up and i like practice at home and it would sound sick and then i'd go to practice and it'd be like
0: because ah, <laughs> ah. obviously you do vocals in, in punch Art. Mm-hmm have you has that been an element that you've always been drawn to or was it kind of from necessity and then it's just kind of growing
1: i think in my arrogant teenage years i did like like i i wanted to be the front man yeah, yeah yeah as opposed to like necessarily having the skills to be <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to actually like being one it was just like well, I, I want to do that um and i, I guess that is kind of the sort of punk way isn't it if you want to do something yeah just do yeah, it yeah, yeah. Just get up and do it no one's waiting for you to so just, just do it yeah Um. Uh. in terms of punch-on punch-on is slightly punch-on was different so if we jump forward a couple of years like I did a, a bunch of different musical projects yeah
0: we'll we'll get onto various bits in a bit uh
1: in terms of punch when it was a case of it it was just me and Isaac so someone had to (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it was it was like there was two of us so someone's got to do it yeah and I kind of like the idea of doing it so no
0: that's cool um and obviously you grew up was it Amesbury
1: uh I grew up just outside of Amersham which is down the road from Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire yeah
0: yeah Yeah. yeah. obviously but now obviously living in Bristol but what was it like the musical scene kind of growing up there because you mentioned there was quite a few sort of gigs but hmm. i guess if you were to say that to anyone now there's not a whole lot that kind of goes through that area no. so was it quite quite decent when you were growing up
1: it was interesting to say the very least uh, when i was like a young teenager and they there was a there was a promotions company that was basically like they'd get a, a biggish band from london when i say biggish i don't you know bands like remember route 215 no, I uh, do. Basically, loads of pop punk and like new metal bands. Right, okay. During that period of time yeah, when yeah, that yeah. was the fashion, you get someone from, you know, someone big to come through, and then basically a bunch of like local kids bands would support. Okay,
2: that's cool. It
1: was quite a cool structure because it meant loads of kids got the opportunity to actually just go and play gigs. Yeah, yeah. Um. And like, I remember being 14 years old and going to see Andrew Shikari play.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Which was like it was actually really really cool it was definitely a moment of like whoa this band's kind of interesting it's yeah. doing things um so there was that and that was kind of like what i was drawn to when i was younger and i probably wasn't aware of it at the time when i got a bit older like i said late teens i became more aware of the stuff going on in high wickham um and the stuff that was coming through and tommy Royds was mm. doing basically what he does now but, yeah, yeah. but then um in the mid 2000s the late 2000s. And when we were uh, 19, he put on Maths, Throats, Crocus, Easy Hips. Yeah. Uh, with two... Two Bucks bands. One called... a Life Backwards.
0: Okay. Who
1: went on to be... One of the, one of the members went on to be an abolition.
0: Oh, right, yeah.
1: That Jimmy... T- Jimmy, that now sings in Higher Power. Yes, yeah. That was his, like... Like, college band. Yeah. Um... And then, um, who was the other band that played? Do you remember uh, another band played? Yeah. One of Tom Lowe's bands. Uh, that was incredible. Yeah. That was one of those kind of like Buckinghamshire, like water break, watershed moments, whatever you call it. I still speak to people now. I like, remember that time that happened? It was like, <laughs> that was actually, like, I don't think we even appreciated at the time how kind of cool that was. yeah, yeah. That's how I know, that's how I know like Mikey Parker and all those guys.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, through yeah. Through
1: that one gig. Oh, okay, sick. So that was, yeah, so yeah, it, uh, yeah, there was stuff going on in Bucks, like always, always musical things. I, I think it's one of those places where nothing really happens and I think kind of activity towards putting on gigs happens because of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, if there's nothing to do you're going to have to do something otherwise you're going to do nothing Yeah. so yeah and you could also argue as well like it's a place of affluence in part and kids do have access to musical instruments and they do have access to almost music education programs because of that there is more almost opportunity
0: yeah and then in terms of I guess your Quote unquote, first proper band. Mm-hmm. What was that like formation? And we used st- to, because when did you actually move to Bristol? Uh,
1: 2007.
0: Okay, so yeah, I'm assuming before that, like before you moved to Bristol, there was sort of stuff or not really. Yeah,
1: uh, well, I had a, a period of time writing a lot of music, and I, I've, I've had those periods throughout like my teens and my twenties where I would write loads of stuff. On like Guitar Pro, mm. and it would be like written for a full band to play, and those songs still exist. I doubt I'll ever use them for anything, but they've they've served like a really good sort of purpose in learning how to write and yeah, explore. Yeah. Like it, it, they're almost like exercises within themselves. Yeah, yeah, of course. But in terms of like I, nothing really, I didn't really do any bands that played any shows whilst I before university really. um I kind of faffed with things and had bits and pieces but nothing ever sort of took off yeah um, it's
0: always really hard
1: to find a drummer I'll say that about <laughs> yeah, Buckinghamshire it it, it, it's always like if you've got a drummer <laughs> hold on to them <laughs>
0: yeah they are literally anywhere and everywhere around the UK they're just like gold dust I yeah. think
1: so like all the drummers I knew already had bands that were doing quite well so it was like cool I'm sure this will figure itself out at some point and uh, when I moved to Bristol that was kind of the point where I sort of fell in love with ambient music yeah um, so I started doing that more like started focusing on that at the start of my second year of my degree yeah so that was when that kind of more I guess you'd almost call it at that point in time it was a bedroom project been performing live for sort of a year or so now but at that point in time those that kind of 2008 to 10 was when i started like recording stuff that yeah, went on yeah. the projects that i was doing at that point in time uh and uh, i was in a band with uh i played bass for one of my friends kind of jokey hardcore projects at that point in time like we played live like maybe three or four times yeah and was there anything else in it not really i think the f- like the the actually doing band's live thing kinda happened about probably three years ago now. Okay. That was when it started really kind of gaining impetus. I'm trying to think. Was there anything before then that I've missed? No, try like Fits and starts, do you know what I mean, trying to get things going yeah, and things yeah. just like people being too busy or or things not being viable. I had a band I did when I was twenty one mm. that never actually played a show, but we wrote like five songs that were quite interesting <laughs> um that was that was the closest I ever got to like actually getting out of the practice space, but um just you know life got in the way, yeah yeah, as it often does uh that was quite cool actually we called ourselves we hustle nice and uh I guess it like I wanted it to be a screamo band and the other guy wanted it to be just like a melodic punk band. So it ended off sounding like not a million miles off of like what the wave bands were doing a bit afterwards. So yeah, kinda yeah. like yeah. you know Touche more air adjacent. Yeah. Um and then yeah, three years ago what did it start with? It started with Sunday cunt, <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. That yeah, the band with the worst name possible, which was at its core, myself, Isaac, and Jamie Grimshaw. Uh, Jamie on bass, me on guitar, Isaac on drums. We got together. I was super out of practice at actually playing normal guitar. Right. Okay. I, you know, been doing like ambient records in my basement and doing other bits and pieces. And when it came to actually playing with a drummer, it was like, oh god, I'm kind <laughs> of sloppy. <laughs> Jamie had all his own gear, and actually had been in that. Was a one-time member of that band. Uh, remember Woo Life?
0: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: World Unite Least for Youth yeah, Foundation. Yeah, yeah. He was the original bass player. Oh,
0: sick!
1: Yeah, so he'd done that, and Isaac had learned how to play drums off of, like, I think it's like Rockstar Drummer or whatever yeah, the video yeah, game yeah. is. So he had had a drum kit and taught himself, but he was super ropey. And basically, when we were hungover on Sundays, we'd just get together, and it was like a Sunday kick about band. Right, okay. And we played one show ever, <laughs> uh, which I put on as part of Rad Not Sad. Um and the lineup was like we opened and then uh who was it bedroom bedroom something they were like a slow core band played 55 deltic played scrap brain score perfect blue and then healing powers headlined right it was an incredible show we we played for, it was so weird we our set was about 13 or 14 minutes long um and I, yeah it was there was like uh, just like five minutes before we started playing perhaps like all of these Spanish people started showing up in Christmas jumpers in okay. in the old England in Bristol and I think they'd basically organised it as their, one of their works Right. Okay. so there was like 40 or 50 Spanish people <laughs> just in Christmas jumpers in the venue as if things weren't already weird enough um, at this point in time we had our friend Lou on vocals she joined um, I think the perspective would, was at that point in time that perhaps it would grow into a real band uh, but anyway we played our set um we had like a blow-up doll with henry rollins's face taped to Brilliant. it it was so weird <laughs> <laughs> at the end of it i was like cool I, g- I guess that was a set all right let's let's enjoy the rest of this show and that's when jamie was like i'm gonna move to amsterdam okay and uh isaac and i had been kind of banding the idea around for a while anyway of like should we do like a hardcore band yeah Um, adjacent to all of that so that that started in maybe the April around that sort of time I started working with Kate Stapley on what was going to be like a an EP or a demo for something she was doing and then I put on a gig for Carson Wells and was like right this we've got like two weeks to pull this show together Kate do you want to play um Sad Villain played that show and I was like well I'm going to do a live ambient set because I've never played live before and Kate and I merged our sets together and created this kind of continuous piece and then she was like, Do you want to play live again yeah. next week? And that grew into a band called Spring Break yeah. with Max and Dom on drums. That ran f- up until the 1st of June this year, just bin. Um, inside all of that, I also did, Ed and I did a noise project called No Ambulance. Oh we- shit, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. that was really crap. <laughs> <laughs> it was, we were crap as anything, but it was quite fun. And then that grew into a metal band called Weeping. Um, so yeah, I, did, I think I counted it and I did something like six projects. In the space of, like, two and a half years, yeah, yeah, three yeah, years.
0: Yeah. Well, because when we first met was through, obviously, you doing Rad Not Sad. Yeah. But then, obviously, that you progress and obviously do, like, bands and shit now. But, obviously, in terms of, like, Rad Not Sad and putting on shows, was that, why did that kind of come about? Because, like, I don't know, like, for me, like, wanting to put on shows was a way to kind of, almost give back to something that I loved, yeah. sort of thing. So what what was the reasoning for you to wanna to actually start doing shows yourself?
1: Just connection with it. Like I, I used to help my friend I used to help Tommy out when I'd be in London and he'd put on shows for American bands and I just I really like the social aspect of it. Mm. And I like I'd go and hang out with people that had been promoting for years and that were getting jaded and the conversation was always the same. Like the best part about putting on shows is actually A getting to hang out with bands and sequel bands but be when you get back to the house and you'll sit down and yeah. maybe you have some drinks or some food or whatever, and you just hang out and talk and compare your lives and how, you know, punk rock in the UK, DIY in the UK, yeah, compares yeah. to wherever the fuck they're from, and all of these kind of things. And it was, I remember like there was a period of time where there wasn't, basically, there wasn't any screamo in Bristol. Mm. Um, and I'd just come back from an amazing all day. Where like, which one? It was about time two, and um, like all of the UK bands that were cool at that point in time, like all of the, the like DIY stuff and all the stuff that was coming out on like strictly no capital letters. Mm. And those kind of bands played. Who headlined that one? Rayan, Rayan, and Joan of Arc.
0: Oh shit!
1: So. I came back from that and was like, well, this that's not happening in Bristol, so yeah, someone's yeah. got to do it. So I put on, um, I started Cheap Words and Handbills at that point in time, which was just the shows I was doing on my own. And the first show was like True Valiance, Crows and Ra, and then some kids that I used to teach, they did a band called Lorax, which kind of was...
0: I don't know, why do I know that name?
1: I don't know. It, 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 I mean, it's a book by Dr. Seuss. Yeah,
0: maybe that's where I i have seen, seen a poster or something, because I've seen like... I th- I think at that point like we were friends on Facebook, so I might something like
1: that. Yeah, so I did that, and then Ed and I would do Rad Not Sad together, and the first Rad Not Sad we are gonna do was gonna be for the band Punch, and they pulled out, and then from there it was just kind of like, sporadically, if we could get uh, a Sunday, we used to get pretty good rates at the exchange on Sunday, so, it, it would, yeah, because of that we would kind of organize like a bigger thing where yeah. it would be like whatever we could find in the UK, whoever was about, whoever was touring, whoever, we were like, yo, we haven't ever seen this band, let's put them yeah, in. Yeah. That kind of a thing, and put together this big show, whatever. Um, yeah, it was. It was just, I had no band, yeah, and yeah. I wanted <laughs> to, to be part of the community. And yeah, actually, that was
0: kind of my reasoning as well. Like, I, yeah. At that point in time, I wasn't in a band. I wanted to be in a band, mm-hmm. but I still wanted to do something
2: musically kind of thing. So. So,
1: yeah, and it was fun to have a project to do outside of work. Yeah, yeah. And it was, at times, it was quite hard managing the both. Like, with Cheap words and Handbills, I, I started it, like, in January. So when I got to December, I was like, well, cool, I can calculate, like, a year of having done a promotions company and looked at it, and I think I put something ridiculous, like, a 100 bands on in my first yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, there's a reason I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working a full-time job as a teacher and doing this. Yeah. So yeah
0: because how many rad notes ads were there in the end
1: it depends how you look at it but four
2: yeah
0: because I think there was one that I'm like in terms of like the big old days I think there mm. was one that I missed which was the ghost limb one yeah, yeah. that was the
1: last one
2: yeah
0: so you mentioned obviously teaching mm. was that what your degree was in
1: my degree was in music tech uh, creative music tech which is like they, it, was a, it was a bachelor of science degree, and how UWE, um, the University of the West of England, were kind of trying to target as they, they were trying to get like, I, I'll elaborate on what I mean by this. Invert, <laughs> inverted commas, fingers here. Musicians. Right. Into the sort of um, more scientific and technological role. Okay. So they created this course that was supposed to be like a, a perfect hybrid between like an almost classic classical based music course yeah. and a technology degree Okay. Uh, I remember speaking to the head of the course at one point in time and he said that what we want to create is someone who can be a forward thinking modern musician with electronic elements in their music oh, okay, cool. which I think I very much became a product of in terms of my solo stuff yeah, as yeah. a result of that like focusing on sort of more ambient drone and kind of like art based electronic music yeah um, yeah does that answer that? I can't yeah. remember what the question <laughs> was yeah. well yeah cause it was so I did, teaching so yeah yeah I did that and then I kind of messed around for a year and then did some classroom experience because I was like well I want to do something with my degree that's yeah. career based and I thought about doing music therapy which is still something I haven't taken off the table as a future perspective mm. and I applied to Nordorf Robbins who are a huge like amazing music therapy organisation based in North London and I got actually an interview. Uh, I didn't get onto the course but they were like, you know, you you lack life experience. Yeah, yeah. I was 22 years old. Yeah, yeah. They were like, do keep an ear to the ground and stay in touch which was cool and then i was like well teaching is sort of like the next thing that yeah, i could yeah. very easily do like i like the <laughs> idea of maybe doing counseling and i looked into it and i would have had to have done an entire degree again right okay. and that wasn't viable because the tuition fees had gone up in that time to being like nine grand a year so what was really viable was it like a master's yeah or a pgce went and did a pgce got to the end of it and was like well actually I don't think I really want to be a teacher, but I have really enjoyed my time in special educational needs. So I got a job that September, literally they had a teacher drop out. Yeah. Um, they had the teacher drop out like on the first day, basically. Mm. So they phoned me up on the first day of term being like, hi, can you work two days a week on a rolling contract and okay. see where it goes? Uh, which took me to two days before I yeah. came on this tour. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so from there that was that was a real experience i, I will say for, in terms of my musicianship it was sharpened heavily by doing a pgc yeah because going back into learning like teaching a level music and music tech like the, the best way to learn anything is to teach it yeah because you then have to take something you know based on the fact that it's like you just formal, do it yeah like it's muscle memory isn't yeah. It? yeah and then turn that into something that someone can take away And then going through loads of theory that I'd studied at A-level, chord shapes, and then taking them and abstracting those so it can be arranged for different instruments. And going back and studying how everything from a compressor works to, you know, what a Phrygian mode scale is to, to, you know, what... um, Yeah, all of these kind of theoretical concepts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, that was... That was great it was, it was just actually the teaching job I wasn't too sure and' it was, when I went into special educational needs I was like oh okay this is this where makes I should, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is where I should have been
0: so in terms of that because like I guess th- that kind of presents its own challenges and, and things mm. like that yeah but what was that obviously now you have quit your job <laughs> yeah. but like what was that kind of experience like having t- to as you say kind of deconstruct everything that you know? Mm-hmm. But not only are you teaching it to someone else, but you're teaching it to someone that may not necessarily get it instantly because mm-hmm. they have some form of learn- learning difficulty.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really it's interesting. Uh, I wasn't. I'm not always aware that the children having autism or not made a difference when it came to music. Okay. It was. It was more to do with their social skills. Like some of them just got things. Yeah, yeah. And some of them did not. Yeah. And that was the same as a mainstream classroom. <laughs> yeah. Like I think there's just some people that I just just get music and don't, and it's that the autistic element w- was more to do with how you manage uh, the minutia. So like I've worked with some people that need to know the sequence in detail. And you can lose your lesson if you've just forgotten to say it's this, then in five minutes we're doing this and then this, or having like a visual way of representing it. I've walked into classrooms before and it's like I've gone in with like, I've got this really cool idea for a lesson and you walk in and you sense the mood and you know that socially they're difficult and they're getting to that point where the hormones are kicking in and they're aggressive and it's like, goodbye lesson plan. Today we're just looking at, let's just, let's just do a bit of a sing song and then you guys can have half an hour to yourselves because otherwise you're going to lose your day. Um... I've done some pretty interesting stuff in the classroom, like being an SEN and having such a small number of people in the room makes it much more possible to turn classrooms into like, again inverted commas fingers, bands Yeah. and, and approach things like that and I had a class I was working at uh, quite recently where I basically was like, they're a functioning band, like everyone has a role, everyone, like some kids are playing instruments properly, there's mm. one kid who taught himself how to play guitar in the space of about nine months so That's he can cool. move bar chords around yeah yeah. him and one of his uh classmates did brain bombs for one of their performances nice. <laughs> which was so cool um and yeah just like tapping into what kids were interested in like interested in sorry and running with it and finding some kids were really into electronic music so we'd sit and learn how to do that and some mm. kids thought they came in knowing they wanted to do one thing and you know, it happened like literally two weeks ago. A kid came in, one of his first days. Says he likes electronic music. Started playing around with garage bands. And he had an okay time. And he's like, there was a bit of a struggle there. Yeah. He had a look at the drum kit, and within five minutes, he was putting together a basic beat. And okay. he, he taught himself a back beat, and then That's he was awesome. like, he pointed at the guitar and went, "Do you want to play?" And I was like, "All right." So we just jammed for like five minutes. I see. Yeah. And then there's this other person I was teaching guitar to, and she was struggling with it. And then again, had to at the drums, and she got it. Yeah. So I think for some people, it's you can get stuck into the idea of I like that instrument I think it's really cool I'm gonna learn how to do that and then it's like "Oh, I struggle this is really hard I'll give something else a go and then just getting it and yeah, being like, yeah. oh no wait actually it was this all along yeah, yeah this yeah. is what I should have been doing yeah um, so a lot of that kind of stuff and a lot of like people finding songwriting as a means of like exploring what's going on in their life which obviously with kids on with autism is huge and a lot yeah. of them came from backgrounds that were complex um, someone I used to work with, who, who kind of almost wrote her own songs. So she had this singing app, and she would like um, come up with like her own words. Okay. And yeah, just uh, we did like a concert uh, last summer at the end, and all these kids came up and did stuff. And it was yeah, it was really cool.
0: So did any any of your students kind of ever get like put onto any of your music, or did you kind of like keep those two set words separate? Yeah,
1: I, I kind of i felt obliged to because of the nature of our school's structure in terms of what it expects from teachers yeah and it's also whilst i have had like uh friendships with pupils that have left previous schools i've been at when it's when it's got to the point where they're like you know 18 and they moved on yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, there's, like i said there's a that band i put on for kids yeah. i teach i see I still see them from time to time yeah they're in their mid-20s now okay cool you know what i mean so it's not it's not...
0: It's not the student teachers kind of... No, it's a different anymore.
1: thing altogether. So I'm not close to that as an idea, but I always try to keep the two as separate as possible yeah. just because it was... Do you know what I mean? I don't have to take work to the punk rock show <laughs> just as much as... <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. Well,
0: in terms of the punk rock show, obviously we've just finished off the the Punch On tour. So how did kind of Punch On come about? Because you said that you and Isaac had done that band yep. previously. Yep. But when did you, you decide that this is what you wanted to do and kind of actually focus on, on making Punch On a thing?
1: So I think we joked about the idea of doing it for a while. Punch On was originally a music festival that I was going to do with uh, Jamie Grimshaw, who played yeah. bass in, in Sunday Count. And um, yeah, we kind of it became a bit more serious around. I think when Jamie said he was going, it was like, should we actually do this? Should we just do a two piece and yeah. keep it simple? And my main point of reference at that time was like, you know when we saw Ghost Slim? Yeah. And it was just fast, but kind of like interesting hardcore. Let's do something like that. Yeah. Uh, And then I heard that new, I guess it would have been new at that time, maybe a year or two, or the the most recent Ampere-Rayen split. Yeah. And the Ampere side just being like, just like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, that would be cool to do. So let's try and just do a band. And it was December 2016. uh, And we kind of... I can't remember what the situation was but Isaac and I basically just went in practice and I was like, let's just come up with something and we pretty much wrote Expect Nothing the music for it at that practice. Okay. And we jammed an intro track which grew into Ode Nothing. Oh, nice. And then I went home and finished those like, songs off as properly structured songs yeah. rather than jams over that like, Christmas and write ephemeral whilst I was at home. We came back, we hung out for the day, and then it was New Year's Day. We went into the practice space and we started writing grief. Say. By the end of January, we'd written Mortal Coil. And like within the space of basically two months, we'd written five, six yeah, songs yeah, that yeah. are on the record. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, we've always celebrated it, the fact that it was just so easy. Yeah. When there's only two of you. And that's that's why, like, because a couple of people are like, oh, let me play bass. It's like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> no. Shut <laughs> <Sure not>. up. <laughs> um, no, yeah. The, the beauty of it is, is that we know each other very well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of love in that friendship and support, and we can kind of just do it and not have to, you know, Person number three says they can't do it. Person yeah, number four, yeah, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's just like, I can do it. Can you do it? Yeah, man, cool. We've turned it around with promoters before when we've been off on shows in 15 minutes. Yeah. Because it's like, can you do it? I can do it, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Can I we think get,
0: it helps that you now live together as yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, we now live together. And,
1: and that is something that needs monitoring as well. It's very important to recognise that us living together, A, doesn't turn the house into a punch-on house because yeah, it's not yeah. that. It's, you know, home is a refuge away from the band. But yeah. it's, you know if we want to do band stuff, you know, we don't have to organise band meetings yeah, anymore. Yeah,
0: that's what I mean. Like, I mean, you can just sort of check in, like, if you get off of the show, you can literally shout across yeah. the hallway and be like, oh, Isaac! Yeah, yeah, literally. and we <laughs> ha- that has happened. <laughs>
1: okay. That has happened. Um, yeah, I, I think any of the success that Pancho has had has been vested in the simplicity of it.
2: Yeah.
0: And, obviously, each night of the run of shows we've done over here in Europe, You've done Hum half past forward. Yes, which you've done a speech at the beginning saying what it's about. Yeah, I brought this up in conversation when I spoke to Jamila because yeah. obviously she was a big part of this as well. But obviously there was a big thing that happened in the UK uh-huh. scene uh-huh. that, uh, without kind of making it sound stupid, but it kind of shook the the boat a bit. It definitely did. Um. For you, you were a person that knew this person extremely well. Yeah. Like, what was, not your reaction, because that's a stupid question to ask, but, yeah. like, where were you at, like, when everything sort of came about? Um,
1: well, I mean, there was the call-out post, at which point in time I was quite aware of what was going on. Right, okay. We. I became aware a little previous to that. Um, it was dribs and drabs of information at first and then I had a a conversation with some other people involved in the situation and kind of got a clearer picture um, and kind of cut off contacts, sort of at that point in time Um, yeah it was I I don't want to sort of almost make it about
2: me entirely, no, no, it's, no of course it's, not.
1: it's not, but it was, it was, there was, yeah. By the time the post came out explaining what was going on, it was, it felt positive, is definitely the wrong word to use, but it definitely felt like things were starting to be dealt with, yeah, and it was yeah. being acknowledged and recognized. And you know, to ensure that there was, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a sense of like things were moving forward yeah. obviously not closure but things were moving forward for survivors yeah and for people that had been through all of that and for people that had been through that for for years previous and you know were were kind of left in silence when this person would go off and actually do things that were visibly successful yeah you know festivals bands and and, and to know that that you know that that was going to be stopped um and i think it was dealt with Really well. Yeah. Um. I think it was really well managed by the people that were involved in help, kind of call it out. Mm. And I was like, kind of overwhelmed by almost the bravery of a lot of people coming yeah. forward and actually admitting what had happened mm. in such a public space, like the yeah, internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean like people say horrible things on the internet for fun? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like to actually go into uh, such a sort of chaotic and unpredictable environment and admit that these things had happened to them like I was just like fuck
2: yeah yeah, you guys are
1: incredible like to have that that strength to do that so yeah
0: and in terms of because like obviously you've done this the new songs which are kind of about that situation Mm -hmm. I've written a song that's about that kind of situation Mm -hmm. but for People like me and you, like white males, it's easy to kind of do that in a a kind of situation because we haven't gone through what the survivors have. So, from your perspective, obviously, I know we'll get on to what the record's raising for, but like, from your perspective, like, what do you think needs to be done more from a male point of view? Because, like, I think when I spoke to Jamila, obviously, it was for her like it was really good that obviously all these incredibly brave women had spoken out and but there is still more that needs to be done Mm -hmm. and i think from a male perspective there's still a whole lot of learning that needs to be done so like where do you kind of see see things
1: well moving forward what needs to happen is men need to get better at talking to other men about bullshit behavior and the kind of the data, like the, the big stuff, like the situation with this person we we're talking about moments ago, obviously that that's one level, but even at like the grass like the, the not even the grass what do I mean like the day to day conversations yeah. you have with people that aren't part of the music community. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like locker room talk or whatever they yeah. call it and that kind of almost that banter that normalizes all of the horrible stuff that comes from it. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. challenge that behaviour at the root. It's, you know, believing survivors is obviously a huge part of it and ensuring that there's structures in place. Like if we were to talk about in the same terms of music, for example, if we were to go into that sort of area, like structures in place to deal with those kind of things. Um, there's an amazing collective in Bristol called Eat Up yeah. who run uh, like a queer punk night. And the way they structure their events is, is so, so supportive. So there's a handful of people involved in it, and they all wear badges yeah yeah and if you want to go and speak to anyone about any behavior you see that is making you uncomfortable or anything that you've experienced you can do and it will be dealt oh, so with immediately I didn't know that. yeah it'll be dealt with immediately there was uh, something being put together almost like a charter to help deal with um, bad behavior at shows and kind of like a you know two strikes or whatever in your out situation yeah, yeah, where yeah. it's talking to people about why the behavior is negative from the promoter right and not okay. for like. People at the show to then turn around and educate someone, but for a promoter to go, look, you need to go and think about this. And you need to, you know, this is a quiet indie pop show. You shouldn't be (laughs) stage diving into, (laughs) like, very, like, do you know what I mean? Like, thinking about things on that kind of level, but also then, you know, if someone has been an abuser or someone is an abuser, making sure that they are not able to access shows where there's people they can abuse and to make sure that there's situate, like, structure in place to to make sure that they are, as much as is possible, and this is the difficult one, like, addressing their behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Because people do need to do that. And I think that, like, a lot of us are kind of brought up with attitudes that are, you know, we as adults are now recognising are not positive. Mm. And it's very important that we see that kind of addressing our own behaviour and addressing our own attitudes as a responsibility of us yeah, like yeah. It's, it's for us to do for us and for everyone around yeah. us and having that sort of almost growth mindset of like we do you know what I mean yeah. we need to kind of move through a lot of perhaps misogynistic attitudes we yeah, yeah. would have been raised with um for the betterment of everyone really
0: and obviously you, again of the show, you've said that what this new EP is going to be raising funds towards is it? Yep. Solidarity and Silence,
1: Solidarity, not silence. not silence, Silence. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I've I seen the name, but I didn't know a whole lot about it until you mentioned it. Yeah, so just for anyone that is listening to this that doesn't know, can you just give a brief explanation as to what it is and why you sort of decided to support it?
1: So, there was a, a high profile musician who put a defamation case out against uh, a group of people. Who were calling this high-profile artist out for uh, shitty, abusive behaviour? Yeah. Uh, what it meant is these people didn't have the power to to call them out anymore. Right. Okay. So they are raising funds to go to court to deal with it okay. that way, to so yeah, ch- yeah. to challenge,
0: to do it legally yeah. rather than yeah. just through the powers of social media. Yeah, and shit. yeah. absolutely,
1: absolutely. So uh, yeah, it's a fundraiser for that yeah. essentially. Uh, we will be recording it soon and we will be releasing it I would imagine later this year um, the organisation is by its own merit hugely important Yeah. because it's it has a tangible outcome Yeah. that is trying to achieve something important and it can stand also as an example of what sort of almost like a grassroots community can do in the face of Big financial power a message to say that look you might be high profile you might have more money but that doesn't mean you can buy your own innocence and you cannot buy silence from people that you have abused that Mm. is not acceptable and when you put that forward as an idea of something you want to do it can be challenged and other people can get in the way and stop you from having that power and that's why
0: and I think like if fingers crossed you hope everything goes forward in terms of they get the funds that they needed but like I guess if people see something like that again it's kind of that whole sort of changing of the culture that people will then see like oh shit this is something that has happened then like not to because it shouldn't even be a thought that enters into people's heads anyway but like it may then again sort of address people's shitty attitudes to see like oh I can't just throw money at yeah. this and it's going to go away kind
1: of thing or I can't just run away from it or do you know what I mean it's it's you know once once the damage is done you have to be accountable yeah yeah like be the fuck accountable yeah I think that's <laughs> that should be the lesson of 2019 <laughs> that then just kind of gets do you know what I mean like the 11th commandment yeah <laughs> that, that last extra rule that they stick on the yeah, wall yeah. in Animal Farm like be accountable <laughs> for your actions
0: and I've before we kind of run things off, obviously you kind of mentioned that you started sort of exploring like electronic music, and, yeah. and later on this year, sort of going out on tour with it. But yep. and have started exploring that side of things a bit more. Yeah. So, I guess firstly, what kind of like drew you to that kind of element of it, and like, was it nerve wracking to kind of do that live because it is it is just you. Well, in the
1: I guess I had a phase with post-rock when I was like 17, 18. Um, And I still like quite a lot of those records, but it was more when I was at university I discovered ambient music as a kind of more, I'm gonna use the word pure, but almost like, like tapping into the core fundamentals of like harmony, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How certain sounds and timbres and textures fit together. And I found, I realized like, if I don't have a band, I can still make music I love. And it kind of had this <laughs> yeah. energy of like, oh, this is my new punk rock. This is what the punk rock of my 20s is going to yeah, be like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I made like, I made an album for my degree, for my dissertation, and that's up on Bandcamp, and I'm pretty sure you can download it for free. Um, and then off of the back of that went and did, I helped my friend maybe a couple of years later do his university film project. Okay. And I helped score that. And I was like, okay, this has got legs. I wanna I wanna do something with it. And when I was twenty six, put up a track called Voltaireine onto the internet, which was a piece I've been working on. It was an old project that was I had some some paid work for. And then the the what I'd created wasn't suitable and I ended up just having this track and I was mm-hmm. like, Well I'm gonna take it away, I'm yeah, gonna make yeah, it yeah. great, I'm gonna release it on my own merit. I'm still playing that track live now. Oh, sick. Um, and through this period of time, I collected a whole load of guitar effects pedals and just kind of started thinking about how to do stuff without a laptop. Yeah. And I first performed live with the show with Kate, that eventually grew into us doing Spring Break, uh, it was just like a guitar into pedals and a tape player. And it, it, it kind of felt like I got to the end of the performance I was like, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. It didn't quite feel like my recorded music did, but I had fun with it. And then we were, Spring Break got added onto a show last January. Um, and the, the, the person putting on the show was like, yeah, do you guys know any ambient or drone artists? They're
0: <laughs> like, hello. And it's was like,
1: hi, me. And <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, right, I'm going to do a proper live performance this time. I've got to write a piece of music. So I had three guitar, I wouldn't even call them riffs, but like ideas, Um, and just basically use my loop pedals that I had because obviously through doing spring break, it kind of taught me how to do guitar ambient music live. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So taking that and being like, well, Kate's an amazing songwriter, but I've got to take her out of the picture. Yeah. Max is a strong bass player and has fantastic looking hair and I have neither of those things. So <laughs> we've got to take that out of the picture. Dom is an absolute machine at putting like abstract drums together that work in a pop song. Gotta take that out of the picture. How do I feel that? Yeah, like, yeah. How do I feel that like absolute like cavern of musical talent? And the answer was an octave pedal and more drones and reverb. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, I know this, I know my, I know my, you know my onions, me Cibola. Um <laughs> So yeah, just kind of composed this guitar piece, um, and I kind of got to a point where I, I got the opportunity to play with Mary Lattimore. Oh, sick! For the Colson Hall at Rough Trade, sort of towards the end of last year. Mm. And I was like, I've got this piece I've learned, I've rehearsed it, uh, you know, I've played a couple shows since. I did a weekender with yeah. Pathogenesis where I was like, cool, I've got this song together, I love it. And uh, I got the, uh, the advancing information through the day before. And they were like, cool, you've got a 45-minute set. And I was like, that piece of music is 20 minutes long. <laughs> I have to find 25 minutes of music in 24 hours. And I was like, well, I can't play any of my laptop music live. Unless I use my laptop. <laughs> and I've been watching loads of stuff with, like, Ben Frost and Tim Hecker. And they were very laptop-based musicians. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, am enamoured with the music they create. And I remember at the time, like, when I, when I was younger, I thought, like, I never want to use a laptop in yeah, a performance, yeah, yeah. you know. I'm a, I'm a guitar player. And there, there was a moment between sort of that January performance and, and this Mary Latimore show where I was like, actually, I am an electronic musician. Like, I'd never acknowledged that yeah, title yeah. before. I'd never pushed it away either. It was just like... You know, I grew up with fans of electronic music who were into drum and bass, dubstep, house and techno yeah. and what I did was not that so I never related it as an electronic form but I was like, right, okay, well I've got to give this performance so I got the laptop out and I took out some of the guitar parts that I could do live okay, and yeah, did this yeah, yeah. kind of integrated live laptop performance stuff played for 45 minutes and at the end of it I was like, okay, that worked Yeah. and during sort of the last two and a half years I've been working on an album called Tape Sleep uh, which is what I'm taking on tour later this year, and we'll be doing the release stuff for when I get back off this tour. Um, tape Sleep was something I started around the time that Kate and I started recording. Yeah. Um, for the first, what became the first Spring Break EP, and it was basically just a collection of sounds recorded to tape that I was making on cassette players that were then corroded, and then all kinds of stuff were done to it. Uh, and I'd been working on it for on and off, and you know, bands came and went, and it just they took priority over this project, and I finally had time to do it, and basically finished off my album. It's 49-minute uh, work based on drones and recordings of you know all kinds of things. There's a piano recording from yeah, the milk thistle. Yeah. Uh, In town, and yeah, put it together, got it mastered. We'll be releasing it on the April, April nineteenth, in Bristol at Centre Space. I'm going to do a week long exhibition before I go on tour. Sick. You listen to the album in bed. The whole album is about sleep. Yeah. It's about analog tape, sleep. Um. Yeah.
0: Very good. Right, as we have to catch a. A ferry back to, to the UK. Cool. I will wrap this up how I usually do. So how I like to end it is to ask my guests what their favourite song is, but with a bit of a twist. So what we'll go with Punch On, because obviously you've just finished the tour. Yeah. What is your favourite Punch On song that you like to play live, and why? Oh,
1: mm. uh, textbook answer is expect nothing. And the only real reason I can suggest is that it slaps. <laughs> like it's Absolutely fine. One, two, fuck you. It's like, oh, this is like, it's fast. It's got beat down bit in it. It's, yeah. Uh, but outside of that, I've been really enjoying playing Harm Passes Forward as a single unit because yeah, yeah, yeah. we hadn't done that before this tour. Oh, okay. We, we played it live for the first time two weeks ago Yeah. Uh, in a room full of people in Cardiff that were falling into my guitar and it was chaotic <laughs> and I was scared. Uh, and to get yeah by the end of this tour I feel like we've got it yeah so I'd say harm passes forward at the moment but historically expect nothing
0: cool lovely Sean thank you very much Thank you. For Tim. your time so there we have it folks thanks again to Sean for having a chat with me and also just taking me out on tour with him um, it was a really cool week as I said at the top of the show. Um, as always you can keep up to date with all of Sean's musical endeavours on the relevant social media platforms which will be linked in the description of this episode. Um, there will also be a link to the campaign for Solidarity Not Silence which the new Punch on Record will be raising funds for. Um, I highly recommend everyone to go check that out and see what they're all about because as we mentioned it's a really important thing that needs to be addressed and this is a step forward in making sure things like this don't happen again um so yeah i'm gonna leave it there next week we will return for episode 100 which i'm really excited about um but for now thank you for stopping by the justin insight podcast and i'll see you soon